A corporation in PEI is evicting tenants to house Tim Hortons workers. Halifax police budget passed illegally. Five RCMP officers charged in the death of an Indigenous man. Why are international students dying? And U.S. Democratic Representative Ilan Omer removed from the Foreign Affairs Committee. Good morning. It's Friday, February 3rd. I'm Nora coming to you from Toronto. Here's the Daily Headlines. We start this morning in Soros PEI, where a company is evicting residents in a six-unit apartment building so it can house Tim Hortons staff who will work at their Tim Hortons locations. On their website, the company, DP Murphy Inc., promises to provide, quote, one of the best hospitality services in eastern Canada. They own several hotels, Tim Hortons's, other fast food restaurants, a Leon's, and the whole thing started out as one guy, Danny Murphy owning two Tim Hortons on Prince Edward Island. The company now owns 20 on PEI alone. Logan McLean from The Guardian, The Guardian PEI, not The Guardian UK, for anyone who's wondering, is reporting that Ahava Kalnasi de Kalnas and her neighbours were told to vacate their units by May 31st, 2023. Kalnasi de Kalnas and two of her neighbours are fighting the eviction. Underpinning their desire to not leave their apartments is the fact that PEI has an incredibly low rental tenancy rate, just 0.8%, which you'll recall I mentioned earlier this week. Of the three challenging the eviction, none have found new rental market units. Two have found housing thanks to government seniors' housing. McLean quoted Kalnasi de Kalnas saying, quote, The fact that there's no one in this society in terms of the municipality or the MLA, the speaker, nobody, even Lawrence McCauley, the MP for the area, has not responded. That might have to do with the fact that the Murphys are a powerful business family. Back in 2013, Gordon Pitts described them like this in the Globe and Mail. The Murphys, all impossibly good-looking with charm to burn, are the local power family, PEI's version of the Boston Kennedys, and are often referred to by first names alone, Danny or Kevin, and restaurant hotel entrepreneur on his own, or Sean, older brother, lawyer, and former Liberal Member of Parliament. While the three are fighting their evictions, it doesn't seem like they're going to have much help with the law as the units are not being transformed to other use other than housing people. Of course, workers working directly for the company that owns the apartment. Modern company housing. Now over to Halifax, where an illegal police budget was recently passed. This is the charge being made by two members of the police board, Harry Critchley and Gavin Giles. As reported by Matt Stickland in The Coast, the police board members were not given the requisite information to have an informed discussion to pass the police budget. Stickland explains that an act respecting policing in Nova Scotia, which is the act that makes the police operate and function, was not followed in how the police board approved this year's budget. Stickland writes, quote, In this case, Section 58 Clause 1 says the Halifax Board of Commissioners has to make Halifax Regional Police Chief Dan Kinsella prepare a budget. And then the board has to submit the budget to council. But in between the two clauses of Section 53 is another, which reads like this. The board shall ensure that the budget prepared pursuant to subsection 1 is consistent with those matters referred to subsection 55.3. Stickland writes, the board did not do this Monday. 
In his explanation for why he was afraid that the budget was being passed illegally, I respectfully have the view that insufficient budgetary information has been shared with me to permit me to exercise and execute my role as it is defined pursuant to the provisions of Section 53.1 and 2 of the Police Act and Section 55.3 of the Police Act. All of us know the provision of these sections require introspection on our part as regards any aspect of our approval of such budget, as we may be prepared to recommend to council. Critchley said, quote, if the board is not making decisions based on evidence and if the public isn't being provided with evidence to support their consultation, then unfortunately, we're not in compliance with the Police Act. Not too surprisingly, the elected officials didn't really see the problem. Lisa Blackburn said she didn't really know how much more information they could be given. She's the police commissioner. I have my notes written here, LOL. It isn't too surprising that in an era where defund the police is extremely popular, police boards would be given as little information as possible. Besides, so much of Canada's public sector boards operate more or less as rubber stamps, as board members are told to trust the professionals who run the operation, who know what's best. I certainly saw that when I was at the Board of Governors for my university. So while I do say kudos to Giles and Critchley, this is a systemic issue that isn't going to be won at a single vote of a single police board meeting. Now to British Columbia, where two RCMP officers have been accused of manslaughter in the murder of Arthur Culver. Arthur also went by Dale. Culver was 35 years old when he died. He was Gixen and Wet'suwet'en. Tamina Aziz with CBC News Vancouver reports that the RCMP had said that police had, quote, received a report about a man casing vehicles and found a suspect who tried to flee on a bicycle. The article describes the events that led up to Culver's death in passive language, and so it's kind of hard to parse what actually happened. But the BC Civil Liberties Association said that Culver was forced to the ground by RCMP officers right after he had left a store, quote, apparently unprovoked. The BCCCLA also said that they heard allegations from witnesses that they were directed to delete cell phone video that they had taken. Paul Saint-Marie and Jean-François Manette were charged with manslaughter, and three others, Eusebio Cruz, Arthur Delman, and Clarence MacDonald, were charged with attempting to obstruct justice. Culver's family and friends expressed relief that charges were laid, but as Terry T.G. As Terry T.G. said with the B.C. Assembly of First Nations, quote, I don't know if they'll ever find real justice, but this is a good step to question and acknowledge that there is a real problem in the police system here in British Columbia and in Canada. And now to national news, which is also an update of news that I've previously mentioned in the Daily News podcast. Press Progress's Ramnik Johal has continued to dig into the high number of international students who have died in Canada in recent years. While there is no one, including the federal government, that seems to be tracking these numbers, at least publicly, Johel places the number of deaths of international students at, quote, dozens. Johal had reported about the deaths of international students in Surrey, British Columbia, many due to toxic drug overdoses, though the information about all the causes of death remain unclear. After that report, she heard from people in Brampton's Punjabi community that they were seeing the same thing. Harminder Hansi from Lotus Funeral Homes in Etobicoke said that they've seen up to seven deaths each month of international students. Hansi said, quote, we send almost four bodies a month, sometimes one or two, but it's an ongoing issue. In 2021, funeral directors said that they were seeing four to five students per month dying by suicide or other causes. Then there are GoFundMe pages, which Press Progress analyzed to find at least 30 deaths of international students from India that happened in Canada in the past three years. Johal reports, quote, according to the crowdfunding pages, 
These deaths relate to various causes, including suicides, heart attacks, people dying in their sleep, workplace accidents, as well as shootings. This was something I also noticed when I was scouring GoFundMe pages for information about COVID-related deaths. It's shocking the number of young Punjabi men whose images appear among the photos of GoFundMe. Johal tried to get information from Global Affairs Canada or from Indian consular officials, but wasn't able to get information from either. Hansi said that when someone dies and needs to be repatriated after death, it's the consular officials who help with the coordination. Hansi thinks they must know something about how many people are dying. Harder Sahota from the Punjabi Community Health Services in Brampton said, quote, I've been in social work for the last 25 years. I've never seen this kind of situation of young people aged 18 to 25 like I have seen in the past three years. And finally, to the United States, where Representative Ilhan Omar has been removed from the Foreign Affairs Committee of the House. CNN is reporting that the main point of contention for her presence on the committee are, quote, past statements she has made related to Israel and in some cases have been criticized by members of both parties as anti-Semitic. This is CNN's way of referring to the fact that Omar has called Israel an apartheid state. This decision comes just hours after the news reported that the West Bank's Israeli settler population has surpassed 500,000 people. The settler population of the West Bank has risen almost 16% over the past five years. The Times of Israel describes the legal regime in the West Bank like this, quote, Palestinians and Israelis in the West Bank live under a two-tiered legal system that grants settlers special status and applies much of Israeli law to them, including the right to vote in Israeli elections and the ability to access certain public services. Palestinians live under Israeli military rule and they do not enjoy the legal rights and protections afforded to settlers. I mean, that kind of sounds a lot like apartheid. I don't know. House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries responded to the decision to oust Omer by promising to appoint Omer to the Budget Committee. That is your news for Friday, February 3rd. I'm Nora. It's the weekend tomorrow, and I hope you have a good one.